our definition of downregulation is twofold. Number one, it's shifting from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system, so from stress to recovery. Number two, it's psychological detachment. You come up with your best ideas when you're riding a bike, when you're sitting on a bus, when you're at the beach, when you're reading a book, or you're lying in bed because you're switching off that high-end beta brainwave, which you're on on technology, which you're on when you're talking in a podcast, and you allow reflection and rumination. If I wanted to do absolutely everything I could to optimize productivity, total shareholder return, I'd go back and in induction, I'd be teaching graduates this. Let's talk about the three by three format. There's 30 second activities, which is about hurry up and relax. That's an oxymoron. There's three minute activities, which is a performance moment reset. And then there's 30 minutes when you've got a little bit more time and that's the double dip where you get that parasympathetic activation and you get the psychological detachment. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. My name is Angela Poon, and I'm the Operations Director at Strive Stronger. And if you're wondering where Andrew is today, well, he's still here, don't worry. But we're turning the tables today, and I'm the host. And Andrew, you're the guest today because I've worked with you for a number of years now, and the team and myself have heard how much you talk and teach about downregulation, and it's, it's become like second nature to you. But not only do you teach this, being a CEO, a father of four, you live and breathe this as well. You put downregulation into practice, and no matter what the demands that you have in your life, you always manage to show up be calm and be present. I want to be able to take some of those learnings and teach our listeners to put that into their daily lives. And I've had to learn to do this. When you've got four kids, four busy, hungry kids, active kids, and when you run two businesses and a mental skills practice, I've had to learn to shift state because when I go home, my kids, and no disrespect to any of my clients listening to this, they don't give a stuff who I work with. Archie likes that I work with the Navy and you know, he likes that I work in sport, but apart from that, they really don't care. And through being an athlete, through working with a lot of athletes and, and being blessed to work with executives at the high level, the work we're doing in the military, performing artists, a whole range of people, it's been learning myself from mistakes, learning from science, but learning from some great performers. And yeah, you're right. Downregulation is part of my vocabulary all the time. So it's probably good that we do, for our team as well, explain a bit more what it is. But if I look at my last couple of weeks, so many coaching sessions, I'm giving people information You've got to downregulate, and they'll often look and go, yeah, I sort of understand that, Maisie, but what exactly is it? So after every coaching session, as you know, I'll go back and write up some notes or send a text. So more than anything, Ange, this podcast is a time management strategy for me so I can send to clients and people we work with, hey, listen to this, understand what downregulation is. But I, I think and I hope today, more importantly, let's really cover some practical strategies as well. Andrew, what I want to cover with you today is the definition of downregulation and three things. The challenge, why is it so hard? Number two, the science behind it. And number three, practical activities. So let's start off with the definition. 
Dr. Tom Buckley, head of our research institute. Dr. Tom is also associate professor at Sydney Uni. We've worked together for nearly 20 years. Our definition of downregulation is twofold. Number one, it's shifting from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system, so from stress to recovery. Number two, it's psychological detachment, and I'll go through that in more detail, but it's relaxing the body and it's switching off the brain. That is our summary of downregulation. Science plus 20 years of practice working together with thousands of people. Given that as a context, why do you think that in today's society, and I've got a couple of views in terms of why is it so hard for people to downregulate? I blame a little Frenchman named Pierre de Coubertin back in 1894 when they came up with the Olympic motto. Do you know what the Olympic motto is, Ange? Oh, you mentioned it so many times, but I, I know because my French is terrible. <laughs> Of Citius, Altius, Fortius, which is faster, higher, stronger. And we have all been sold ever since Pierre de Coubertin modernised the Olympic movement. Let's go faster. Let's go higher. Let's be stronger. But there was no word in there around recovery. In fact, I had to do a Google search on this. The Latin word, it's called recuperatio. And that is the Latin word for recovery. So if Pierre de Coubertin had said Citius, Altius, Fortius, and recuperatio, maybe we wouldn't be in this mess. And I say that part tongue-in-cheek, but a big part, how we've evolved over the last couple of hundred of years in business, as we've gone from the industrial age to the more modern age, fueled by technology, it's just all been about let's add more to the system. It's never been around let's take some time out of the system or let's recover. So going way, way, way back, even in the early 1900s, we started this addiction with speed back then. It's interesting in 2021, I really believe in digging to the research on this as a response to COVID and the disconnection the world had when we all went into isolation. The IOC has updated it. Now it is Citius, Altius, Fortius and Communita, which means together. So big steps from the IOC to talk about connection and collegiality. But if I can put a message out to any of my friends on the Olympic movement, you got to add recovery. Mm. That's really interesting that it's come from that foundation because if you look around at society and what we're seeing, we're often rewarded for output, for being productive, for achieving that next promotion, for getting that next tick in the box. We don't get rewarded for that down, taking that downtime and that time off. Often it's seen as being weak if you take some time off for yourself or selfish. So what is your response to that? My response is I've been an elite sport as an athlete, then as a strength and conditioning coach, now specialising in mental skills for nearly 25 years. And in sport, you don't ask the question. It's you train hard, you recover hard. You train hard and recover hard. And that's how you win competitions. That's how you win races. That's how you win tournaments and go to the next level. What's changed in the corporate world for me in the last three or four years, now I'll get a CEO come to me and say, hey, I've got a whoop band. I know my heart rate variability. I know my VO2 max. I, I know my readings around sleep. I've done different work on brainwaves. Can you work with me to go to the next level? So there is more education around there now, which is great. But still, the majority of people will go, yeah, yeah, I know all that, but I'll just get through this week, this month, this quarter, this year. And then it becomes a habit, a routine. And 10 years goes by, Ange, and people, you're nodding because you know, we both work together in a consulting firm, and you get stuck on that train, and it's taking off, and it's alluring. And before you realize it, that's your default behavior. It's the same game. 
It's so true because I was actually having a conversation with one of my friends and they actually reached out because they wanted to have some advice on parenting. They actually wanted a, a recommendation to a therapist and I said, oh, well, I don't really have one, but you know, I'm happy to ha- lend you a friendly ear. And it was around the topic of parenting and how they wanted to reduce their triggers because they found that we would and they're an excellent exceptional parent don't get me wrong but they had this self-awareness about knowing that they would be really patient and loving one moment but then something would happen and they'll tip over and then the next thing that they're shouting and they're making their kids cry (laughs) so she was wanting help on how to reduce those triggers so it started off as a parenting conversation But we sat down and we talked and I was asking about what was going on in her um, life in general. What was she doing in her downtime? And she has a big role in a a major organisation. And she was, she said something really interesting. She goes, said, Ange, I don't need downtime. I just have time for my work and my family. I don't need time for me. And I'm like, oh, is that right? That's really interesting. And we talked about a little bit more and I said, well, how are you how do you have that capacity to have that patience with your kids if you're constantly being on all the time and she didn't have an answer mm. and a lot of people listening to this would be going i think she's talking to me and you you add that that this whole cult of busyness you add covid to that there's these increased expectations now because of hyperconnectivity and also working from home. A recent Microsoft study on the Work Trend Index, which is a global survey of workers, and this answers across multiple industries, and it was published in September, it showed more than 50%, in fact, 53% of senior managers report feeling burnt out and extremely fatigued at work. Now, also COVID was on the back end of, in Australia, bushfires, we've had droughts, we've had floods, we've had royal commissions. It's just been this extreme increase, this extreme surge in demands on all of our systems. And there's been no drop. There's been no, again, down regulation. And that's what surge capacity, when you when you look at this as a science, it's a set of mental and physical adaptive systems. So Dr. Tom and I will often talk about surge capacity. You surge and then you drop. And sport, you surge and you drop. But we've had COVID, we've had bushfires, we've had droughts, we've got hyperconnectivity, we've eroded those borders. Even the the art, which is an art of people warming up to get ready for work on the commute when they're working from home, we've taken that art away. And you can see now it's just full steam ahead. And it's going to get worse unless we have more conversations like this. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I'm going to add to some of those statistics that you mentioned. You mentioned burnt out, burnout and you talked about that hyperconnectivity. I was doing a little bit of research in preparation for this and I was astounded about some of the technology stats, about the pervasiveness of technology that's really eroding that ability for us to downregulate. We've got 5.16 billion people around the world that have internet connection. We have 4.76 billion people on social media and that 
we have 6.92 billion that have a smartphone and the average person spends nearly seven hours online a day. It's no wonder that there is so many people walking around zombied and being burnt out because there is no opportunity for us to disconnect with all of the bombardment of technology that we have. And while our technology diet has changed, where we're feasting on tech, what hasn't changed? Our need to recover. Our biology. The human function, the word homeostasis, is getting a balance in a system. And homeostasis is you add stress and then you recover. You add stress and then you recover. We are getting more and more people reach out to us. And you see this, Ange. And in my executive coaching part of the business, I would love to shut down the reactive part, which is people who are burnt out, who are strung out, who are tired and fatigued, who are having that emotional blow up, that amygdala hijack, not just on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And they've totally jacked their autonomic nervous system. It's just wired the whole time. So while the world has changed, while the speed of Sitius, Altius, Fortius have changed, yes, we've added togetherness, but we still haven't bought in this fundamental it's, it's a biological need that we've got to drop the intensity. And there's loads of research around this. But if I could jump out of research, because I'm conscious that some like research, but others will want a story or an analogy. You know my mum and dad are both off the farm? Yes. What do farmers do, Ange, to get this balance and this beautiful seasonal cyclic rhythmicity on farming? I would assume there are days when it's harvest and then there are days where they're cultivating the land. That's pretty well it. And also they have days where they work on the machinery so they don't run the machinery into the ground. Life is seasonal. It's the rhythmic force of nature. Every day, if you look out the window where we're recording this, it's a beautiful sunny day here in Sydney. This morning, the sun rose. Tonight, the sun will fall. This morning when I was swimming with my mates, and they think I'm an idiot, every morning throughout winter on a Monday, I'll dive into the water at Balmoral. The tides rise, the tides fall. In autumn, the deciduous trees lose their leaves. I'm starting to sound like David Attenborough. This is the rhythmicity of nature. You can't change it. There are lessons everywhere, loud and clear, but we try and shut them down because we're glued to our technology devices. We are imbued in these corporate cultures that are obsessed, to quote Owen Eastwood on this podcast recently, around high performance, but not healthy work practices and sustainability. And it's interesting you say that that our bodies need that, and our biologies need that down-regulating and that recovery. When I was doing the research for this, I read, I came across, across an article that spoke about how infants are born with the capacity to upregulate and respond to stress, but their parasympathetic pathways are actually not switched on at birth, and that this means they can go up and cry and fuss to get that attention in order for them to survive when we're out in the jungle or in the wild. But they don't develop their parasympathetic pathways until they get thousands and thousands of supportive, soothing, loving interactions with their parents or caregivers in order to develop that ability to downregulate. Mm. And here's how I teach this for a lot of people. It's around capacity. So everything we're going to talk about with the science, we'll get a bit more nerdy on vagal tone, on parasympathetic, on you know going alpha on your brainwaves. It's creating more capacity. So this cup in front of me is about 250 millilitres of water. That will take 
a quarter of a litre, 250 mils. If I pour any more water in that, what happens to the water? It flows out of the cup. That's exactly what happens with our biological processes. But what changes capacity? Well, the research shows when you love your job, your cup or your capacity grows. If you're listening to this and you're in the rare, less than one out of five people, it's about 17%, who are highly engaged in their workforce, you'll have more capacity, you'll have more emotional buffer. If you have a supportive home life or family or significant other or kids, you have a bigger cup. If you have a bestie at work, like having someone at work that you can share with and you'd say is your bestie at work. So who's your bestie at work, Anne? That's such a good question. I've got like a room full of people that are uh, working on the team and if I feel like I say one or the other, someone's going to get mad at me. Say wizard. It's wizard. Uh, also, you look at this and you know, your daughter now is at school. I've still got two who aren't. Millie's not even 18 months yet. Poor sleep's a big thing. You experiment in inverted commas as a parent. And a lot of the research will show if you have a really bad night's sleep, your cognitive function, your decision-making capacity, your emotional regulation, the following day is going to be rubbish. Well, not always true. Because if the other biological processes are in place and you have more capacity, you can have a couple of bad nights and still function. That's where I like looking at, okay, the research says this, but what about the whole system in its entirety? So you know as a parent, if you have a buffer, and we talk about that biological age, that physiological buffer, you have a couple of bad nights sleep and you're not going to fall in a heap. The other big one, and you've heard me talk about this a lot, is purpose. That people with a clearly articulated purpose, one, they'll live longer, two is they'll earn more money, and three is they'll have much more resilience because when you have a knockback or a setback, when you can go, hey, long term, this is shitty now, but it's not going to ruin my life, you can recalibrate and get back on track a lot quicker. What if someone's listening to this and go, oh, purpose, that's such a big question. How do I go about discovering my purpose? If you then go, because I'm so tired and I can't even get out of bed with energy, don't go to purpose. Purpose is, it's a higher order first principle. First of all, I would look at sleep and recovery, daily movement, love and connection, nutrition, a little bit of fun, then down the track go to purpose. And, And that's a good question. Because so many people look at, I've got to clearly articulate my purpose because I heard Simon Sinek said it starts with why. But if you're feeling tired and fatigued and distracted and your boss is an arsehole. <laughs> I just saw nod, nod, nod. Hmm, pause. <laughs> but but if, you, if you're not in that environment, don't go to purpose. Get the basics right first. And that's such a good tip because like everything else in life, we always want the quick fix, but we actually have to circle back and think about, well, what is the basic foundations for me to even think of that next step? So, Andrew, you talked about you know, creating that buffer and that capacity, um, which is great tips for people. Can we talk a bit more about the delving a bit deeper into the science behind it? What is this doing to our systems, our bodies and brains when we're not downregulating properly? So we'll go back to the definition of downregulation. First of all, it's parasympathetic. So the autonomic nervous system, which controls a lot of your body's functions without thinking about it. So you're not in the room right now going, breathe, I forgot to breathe. Your body's not saying, hey, digest that food or the water I had before the interview. Your body's not saying, hey, I need to get glucose into the system so I can then add oxygen and burn that for energy. It does it all automatically. And I'll pick up on what you said about that that lovely study with young kids. 
our body is wired to really quickly go to sympathetic nervous system because it's survival, fight or flight. So now we don't walk around in the prairies or the the plains and see lions, dinosaurs. Now we are in the workforce or at home with technology. So our bodies jack up, our autonomic nervous systems jack up in a couple of seconds. Yeah, But they don't know, like young kids, unless you consciously take time out and learn. It's why this is called learning how to downregulate. And it's a trained response. So to learn to downregulate, which we'll talk about in part three, You've got to do reps and sets in a non-pressurized environment, and we'll get to that. So the people that are listening in and thinking, oh, I never feel like I can downregulate because I feel like I'm stressed all the time, and that's just my biology and my heart rate's always really high, and that's just the way that I'm wired. What you're saying is that this is a skill that can be learned. Absolutely. It's become a skill to be stressed. We see this in our corporate programs. When you ask a leader, how are you? Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so tired. You wear busy and tired like a badge of honour. Before you realise it, that's become wide in everything you do. Your physiology follows suit. So if we go back, though, that question you asked about the physiology of stress. So when you're stressed, everything goes up. Metabolism goes up. Blood pressure goes up. Heart rate goes up. You know, breathing rate goes up. It goes up almost to that low cardio zone. Uh, Blood flow to major muscle groups goes up. Tension goes up. So. And where, where do you feel stress? Like, I oh know I feel it in my neck when my I shoulders. get stressed. In your shoulders. Yeah. 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 Now, there's one thing that goes down, slow brainwave patterns. And we need slow brainwave patterns to make decisions. We need slow brainwave patterns to think and to reflect and come up with new models. So when everything goes up on stress, our decision-making capacity, when we get too stressed, actually drops. We all know that. There's a, there's a peak that Yerk is in Dodson inverted U hypothesis. You want enough stress and stimulation that you're alert, but then when you get over alert and overstressed, over aroused, your brain starts to jump around. You're saying that the more stressed we get, the dumber we get? Yeah, yeah. Without stress. So with my athletes, it's probably the best way to explain that example. You want some positive stress. I want to move to bin the notion that stress is bad. Stress is freaking awesome. Stress made you and I turn up today. Stress makes you and I do presentations later this week. We've got a really exciting opportunity with our digital platform. That's going to positively stress us to get that proposal right that hopefully Thursday our client says yes, and that's a game changer. That's positive stress. But when you don't have the down, the recovery. So let's look at the body. What happens in relaxation or parasympathetic? Your metabolism drops, your blood pressure drops, your heart rate drops, your breathing rate drops, comes right back down. Your muscle tension drops and your slow brainwave patterns go up. And that's interesting that it's actually everything else goes down, but your brainwave patterns go up. And this is why when you learn this, it's, it's an absolute gift because you can control your physiology and go, hey, well, what's happening at the moment? I feel like I'm about to go into a big performance moment and everything's up a little bit too much. My breathing rate, my heart rate, my clarity in thinking is not good. So what I need to do is to downregulate. I've got to drop the heart rate and it all starts with breath. When you control the breathing, you control the heart rate. You drop the physiology, the brain follows suit. So just that little understanding in physiology, which is why when we do our mental skills programs with companies, banks, the Navy, consulting firms, I give people enough science so they understand the utility and then give them the practical activities after so they go, ah, there's science behind it. Now let's practice and and do the reps and the sets. 
a quick break in the program to let you know about the Performance Intelligence Masterclass. You see, every week we receive a number of requests from people listening to the podcast or attending one of my keynote presentations wanting to know more about personal performance coaching. Due to the demands on my time running strivestronger.com, delivering mental skills training for athletes and sporting teams, my speaking practice, and also having four kids, I only allocate a set amount of time each week, about half a day, towards coaching. And this is primarily targeted at senior executives and entrepreneurs and founders. The starting price for my coaching programs is $15,000, which I realize is a lot of money and it's prohibitive for many people. So, based on the success of a 12-month coaching program we've been delivering for a number of corporate clients, we are launching a public version of Performance Intelligence Masterclass. It's open to the public and it's open to people like you. So if you would like to boost your psychological fitness and resilience, enhance physical well-being and energy, if you want to live longer, if you want to increase productivity, if you want to enhance cognitive capacity and decision-making, and if you want to do this with a support group of like-minded people, oh, and if you also want to make more money, Performance Intelligence Masterclass has been designed for you. How does it work? Well, the format is we pick a theme for each quarter like being match fit or boosting productivity or accelerating mental skills, enhancing leadership, etc. There's a half-day group workshop. Then we have six weeks of check-ins where you're made accountable each week just by asking five or six key questions. And then we wrap that up with a 60 to 90 minute workshop, six weeks after the half-day workshop. And then for the rest of the quarter, you put this into practice. To find out more, go to andrewmay.com slash Performance Intelligence Masterclass. Andrew, you gave me a quote the other day about how we were taught how to work, but not taught how to carry the weight of the work, which I find that to be a really interesting um, quote because I was talking to Dr. Tom this morning about downregulation, and he was talking about how our behaviours block our ability to downregulate. And that emotional stress, which a lot of us get from work, is one of the biggest and most toxic forms of stress. And how that emotional stress doesn't raise our sympathetic nervous system, but it drops our ability to regulate. Interestingly enough, though, exercise doesn't do this. And he spokes about how emotional stress is a like I said, a more toxic form of stress because it withdraws the parasympathetic nervous system and increases inflammation, but it's actually much easier to downregulate from physical stress. But in the working world, we like in that quote you said, we learn how to work and carry that burden of stress, but we don't learn how to put it down. Citius, Altius. 40s, there's a missing piece. And that missing piece is also connected to what we call the vagus nerve. That's the longest cranial nerve in the body. It comes from the Latin word for wandering, and it wanders throughout our whole body. And it connects the brainstem to the rest of the body. It has four main functions, the vagus nerve. It has sensory functions, special sensory functions, motor and parasympathetic activity. So we'll stick on the parasympathetic activity today. So it's, it's the body's superpower that counteracts the fight or flight system. Now to increase your vagus tone or your vagal tone, two main components, increase your VO2 max, 
That's why doing regular interval training is wonderful. Getting that heart rate up increases that body's buffer, your physiological buffer. But the second way, and you mentioned this before, exercise doesn't always do it because you can jack the autonomic nervous system and jack the heart rate and jack your physiology up. But you've also got to get that parasympathetic or that relaxation. So understanding a little bit about the vagus nerve, it really connects the heart and the brain. We're not a head on a stick. This whole notion around downregulation, yeah, you've got to drop the heart rate. Yeah, the vagus nerve connects the two. But then we also look at what happens to brainwave patterns. Right now, Ange, I hope you're in beta. You're awake, you're conscious, and you're alert. Can you just nod? It makes me feel good about myself. (laughs) Still here. (laughs) In a lot of the programs, and you've seen me do this, when we do deep breathing, we talk about how that's being more relaxed, about calm, and actually not thinking. That's where I talk about the five Bs. You come up with your best ideas when you're riding a bike, when you're sitting on a bus, when you're at the beach, when you're reading a book, or you're lying in bed, because you're switching off that high-end beta brainwave, which you're on on technology, which you're on when you're talking in a podcast, and you allow reflection and rumination. And then when you go or you shift those brainwaves and then back to work, what happens? Your creativity and you're able to problem solve. And I think I often do this, you'll give me a problem or something to think about. And I actually have when I sit down and try to type something out or put it in a PowerPoint straight away, you often tell me to go back to the drawing board. My best um, work happens way later or after I've actually gone for a walk or after gone for a gym and on my way back from the gym where I, where I walk home, that's where I actually get some of my best ideas. I do this when I go down to Jeroa to either write a book or come up with a new program. And it's down regulation that increases my productivity. So work, come up with ideas, concepts, I'll throw them to you, to Dr. Tom, to other people I'm working with. And then when I've had enough, when I fill the cup, the capacity is full, I'll go for a walk, I'll have Toby, my dog, and think about that physiology. I'm going for a walk, it's not a hard run. So it's dropping the nervous system out of that that high level, sympathetic, into parasympathetic, and I'm totally shifting my brain waves into alpha. And then you come back and go, ah, oh, that's how I need to open that keynote. That's what we're gonna do in our online platform, Ange. Or yeah, that's something I'm totally missing. It's a blind spot I've had in my mental skills programs. And just to close out on the brain waves, Theta is that deeper relaxation, which you get from meditation and also from doing imagery. And delta is that deep, dreamless sleep. And and Dr. Tom and I will pick up on that more in an upcoming podcast. But just to wrap the science, downregulation is going from sympathetic stress to parasympathetic recovery. Sabine Sanatong, the wonderful German researcher, talks about psychological detachment. And to give psychological detachment, where you switch off from thinking about work, to give it more of a science structure, we look at the brain waves. So you're moving from beta, where you're conscious, and beta's good, but again, you've got to drop, you've got to pulse, get down into alpha, and then periodically into those deeper brain waves. And then when you come back on beta, you'll be much stronger. There's a beautiful term, we're, we're doing a a lot of work with the military. It's one of the favorite projects I think we've done in recent years. And one of the terms in the military, Angie, is slow down in order to speed up. It's totally related to the science and the body and brain. It's down regulation 101. Yeah. So for those that are listening and thinking that, you know, oh, 
that holiday that you should be taking or that break that you should be taking for yourself, it's there's actually it's more than just about taking a break. It's actually about helping you improve your performance, both from a physiological perspective, but from a work output as well. It's going to help with your creativity. It's going to help with your innovation, innovative thinking and your problem solving skills. Often we don't equate the two. So it's really interesting that in order to speed up, we actually have to slow down like that military saying that you just spoke about. I often think if I was CEO of a company with 50,000 people, it's never going to happen. So, but I just, just going there just from a scenario point of view, and if I wanted to do absolutely everything I could to optimise productivity, total shareholder return, investment, both now and in the future, to tap into the capital on your people, intellectual capital, to, to look at everything you need to do in an organisation, I'm biased with my background, but I'd go back and in induction, I'd be teaching graduates this. I'd absolutely be teaching graduates about parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system. I would absolutely be teaching graduates about breathing. I would absolutely teach graduates you've got to work hard but then slow down in order to speed up again. I would absolutely teach graduates what I've learned in sport for 20 to 25 years about this beautiful seasonal rhythm and off-season. You go hard, you play, you recover. It just works, Ange. Mm. And I think not e- just not even with graduates, but even down to the school level, teaching our kids how to slow down because I think some of that is being brought into schools. Some schools are teaching meditation and yoga practices. So I think we're slowly as a society learning the positives of this, but I don't think we've made that connection like you so clearly have in terms of the performance side of recovery. Yeah, and if you could go back, I totally agree. In fact, one of my best friends who I grew up with, his daughter is currently studying year 12, and I've been doing some work with her around mental skills. It's made a real difference, and I'm I'm really loving seeing her put it into practice. But it gets me thinking, kids who want to get a a TER, tertiary entrance rank, or your HSC score, if you don't get above 95, 96 For a lot of kids, that's medicine. If you don't get around 90 or 92, for a lot of kids, that's law. It it doesn't wreck your life, which a lot of young kids think. If I don't get into medicine or law now, I'm never going to get in. You know, the the guy on the Sesame Street, it'll never happen. You bang your head on the piano. But it makes a big difference if you get into that stage, especially if at a young age you're pretty clear on the career path you want to go. So working with my mate's daughter doing some basic cognitive reframing work, teaching her about that Yerkes, Dodds and inverted U hypotheses. So when she gets into an exam, she knows if that stress goes beyond a certain level, name it and frame it. We've come up with a caricature and she can say, insert name, piss off, not now, come back at a later time. All these skills that I work with my athletes to win championships, world titles, it works for a 17-year-old girl studying her HSC. So again, I totally am aligned with you learning this. It's, it's a, I, I remember volume equals four-thirds pi r cubed from school. That's totally useless unless I want to fill up a tank. <laughs> but I, I, I believe learning these skills at a young age would have made a huge difference to my running career. I was good, not great. I did my best racing Ange on low-key meets, and in the big-key meets, I got overwhelmed because I didn't know how to downregulate. So you actually pulling on a string. It's even deeper with me. It's not just a saying. 
I don't want people to make the same mistakes I made as a young kid because I didn't have these skills. I didn't I didn't know how to tap this. Yeah, it would be amazing if we can teach that and I didn't even think of using that as a skill to prepare for a big performance moment like an exam moment. But I think if I had that when I was doing my HSC, I would be so much more calmer than what I was then and stress levels within children and anxiety levels within kids and teenagers these days are like through the roof so can you imagine if you gave them some of these tools what that will do for the mental health of of our kids so that's like an, another story for another day yeah and some schools and the education department is really moving forward in this so it's changed quite a lot like i'm not going to sit here and say when well, i was a boy and i went to school in dubbo and you know we were the first year 12 that uh, didn't have computers as an elective. <laughs> now, that makes me sound mature, doesn't it? Wizards going, oh, God, you are You mean old. the last. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, the last. But if we get back into people listening to this, thinking about their day, some organisations naturally have built in a sustainable operating rhythm. Yeah. And talking to Dr. Tom and Pod Drago Sullivan, and big shout out to Pod, we did this on the NAB podcast, and Dr. Tom and Pod both started their careers, both Irish, how's this? Both started in nursing, both have gone on to you know, being global leaders in their field around performance and medicine, so fascinating that podcast. But there was an ICU study that showed now in ICU, in hospitals, there's no downregulation. So one of the biggest reasons they believe there's so much burnout in doctors, in first responders and nurses, is before we had mobile phones and we're tweeting and tindering and texting in the breaks, you used to go outside, you used to talk to someone, you'd get some emotional support rather than just on your mobile phone, again, hijacking your sympathetic nervous system. So there's no down regulation, really interesting in ICU. And if you think about a car, the bogan in me thinks about the difference between accelerating and braking. Yeah? And that's what your day should be like. Pulse, go hard and then brake go hard and then break. Now, this happens in schools. Now, kids get to school, they run around play chase your handball, and then they'll work for an hour and a half. Then they'll have little lunch. Then they'll work for an hour and a half and they have big lunch. And then they'll work for a few hours and they go home on the bus. So school's got it built in. Yeah. Little lunch and big lunch are really his favourite time of the day. Yeah, they're my time <laughs> of the day still. Now, and this used to be built into a lot of businesses, but what's happened is the, the smoko, not having a smoke, but you know the generic term smoko, to drop the tools and go and talk to people, we work through the breaks now because we've got too many emails. That Microsoft study showed, and this appalls me, that up to two and a half days now in the average knowledge worker's life is filled up with shitty, non-necessary meetings and email. 50% of our time. So, so wrapping up on the science, you see I get a little bit passionate about this and it's why Dr. Tom and I are going to go a deep dive on this. In your day, get a blend between sticking your foot on the accelerator and putting it on the brake. Because if you don't ange, this increases risk of inflammation. It increases risk of insomnia. This increases risk of metabolic syndrome as well. And it definitely increases the risk of being an arsehole. <laughs> well, we don't want anybody being an arsehole. 
Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon, so watch this space. Andrew, we've covered why it's so important to downregulate. We've looked into the science behind it. Now what I really want to get to is the nitty-gritty of examples that we can tell our listeners of what they can do to downregulate in order to be calm and be present. But before I do this, I've pulled one of your weeks so that we can put all of this into context and people can understand, wow, what is the life of Andrew and how does he really make this work? Andrew, for this week, you started with a 450-kilometre tour to cure bike ride from Canberra to Sydney via Kayama. You had nine sales meetings. You had four coaching sessions. You had a roadshow with Westpac and the TDC panel. You had a workshop, a keynote, a half-day mental skills at Manly. And one of your athletes that you work with, Tim Zhu, had his world championship belt that weekend. I remember that week. I remember getting to Sunday night and just falling in a heap. It was an exciting week. Somewhat atypical, but when I look at a year, I'll look at trying to have a an ideal week or what we call a better week, around 25 to 30 weeks. I have those survival or crazy weeks, around 15 to 20 weeks, and I like to have around six weeks where I just do nothing. So that really was a survival week. So Ange, what I do with a week like that, at the very start of it, psychologically, I just shift into thinking I need to survive. And what I've learned over the years, I call these my stabilizers or training wheels so I don't fall off and wobble. I have five. So I move every day. I drop the high-intensity fitness and I just move. It's about waking up my mitochondria. Two is it's connecting with my kids because invariably a crazy or a survival week, I'm often away and there's an anxiety if I'm not connecting in with the kids every day. So FaceTime is wonderful for that. The third one is it's a daily focus. I forget the weekly focus, quarterly, monthly, big purpose and everything. What do I need to do to survive today? What are my key performance moments? And it really is breathing. Lean into that performance moment, reflect quickly, and then get into the next one. Four, I really focus on recharging or downregulating, and we'll go through the three-by-three format that I use. 
And five, all big kids need to have fun as well. And I find when I'm especially traveling and doing lots of work, exciting, engaging work, if I don't have fun, I get a bit edgy. You probably see this at work as well. So I'll ring up one of my mates, often a dubbo mate or a sporting mate, and just something stupid conversation, have a bit of fitness play or with the kids. So that's what I do to keep myself sane. And if I'm really tired or if it's a really big week and I don't have the mojo or the motivation like I normally do, I'll tap into why. So I go into purpose and that really that anchors me and I'll take a breath and go, okay, where is this taking me in the next three years, five years? So while it is a real daily focus, if I'm really struggling, I go, okay, why am I doing this? What am I pushing towards? And I find that helps. That framework really does get me through those crazy weeks. Before key performance moments, not just in that week, but but always, well, I'll ask you, what do you notice that I do before a big talk? This is something that I had to get used to because I would prepare with the organisers for a keynote and on the actual day itself, the organisers would often come up to me and like, where's Andrew? Where's Andrew? Because five, two minutes sometimes before the keynote, you've disappeared. And initially I'd be like, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> He's, He's done a runner. Got to go find him. Why can't he just stay still? What I've realised what you do is actually you take the time out for yourself so that you can take a moment to center yourself and it's could be some deep breathing or it could be some positive self-talk but I do know that you consciously walk away from that situation so that you can give yourself some buffer before a media interview before I talk for any big performance moment I will get myself out of the environment especially if it's a big conference uh, there was one I did earlier this year eight eight and a half thousand people in Las Vegas and they wanted me to sit in the front row next to the CEO of this big global tech company I'm like no way I said look can you please sit me on the side and I explained why I've got better at explaining why because then people might think you're antisocial now I need to sit over there and control my state I don't actually say it in the science but I just want to sit there and relax because if I'm next to the CEO the 90 minutes that they wanted me there before my 30-minute keynote. So you fly all the way to Las Vegas to do a 30-minute keynote. If I'm sitting there and I'm on a couple hours before I'm on, I'm going to be cooked by the time I get up on stage. So yeah, that, back to that week, I did lots of little micro-recovery breaks, which I now teach. You don't need an hour. And I do remember on the Saturday on that week, I did nothing. N-U-F-F-I-N. I didn't make any appointments. I just spent time at home. Because a big thing about emotional regulation, if you've got tension, if you've got drama happening at home, you bring that to the workforce. I don't care how good you are, that impacts you. So I made sure on Saturday I checked in with my loved ones so they felt loved. And you really do put things into practice, but that example alone tells me that it's something that you live and you breathe. And I was talking to Dr. Tom about what he has learned from you. Um, he's our research institute director, he's associate at University of Sydney, but he's also worked with you for the last 16 years. And I asked 19 him, years. Is it 19 yeah. years now? Wow. We keep saying 16, but it's been three years since. I've asked him, what has he learned from you when it comes to downregulating? And he said this, I've learned from working with Andrew that my approach to recovery for years was to only engage in recovery once I'd pushed myself into a fatigue state. Whereas Andrew has always strategically planned recovery and downregulation before and after work periods. 
Seeing the positive effects of this has really changed how I see down regulation and recovery. And now it's built in strategically for me before and after intense work periods rather than something I do just because I've been smashed, fatigued or burnt out. And he's also said this. Andrew has a whole lot of hacks when it comes to down regulation. He goes manic at times and has these hacks to switch off to recover and down regulate. I'm shaking my head, Dr. Tom. Uh, the first bit was lovely. Thank you, mate. When you get on the hacks, I'm going to headbutt you next time. I, I despise the word hack, Angela. And you know that as well. You're winding me up because I hear all these lifestyle entrepreneurs and these biohackers say, you know, work 80 hours a week. It's 100 hours a week. Let's hustle and then take the two-minute hack. It doesn't work. Hacks do hacks. Uh, what we do, there's a scientific rigor to it. Let's talk about the three-by-three format. And I've evolved this over the last couple of years as well. There's 30-second activities, which is about hurry up and relax. It's an oxymoron. There's three-minute activities, which is a performance moment reset. And then there's 30 minutes when you've got a little bit more time, and that's the double dip, where you get that parasympathetic activation and you get the psychological detachment. So let's start with the hurry up and relax. That's 30 seconds, Ange. It's all you need because so many of my busy clients, founders, coaches say, Maisie, I get all this stuff, but mate, I can't go on a three-day weekend to the Gold Coast to Bali to the hinterland. I don't have time. I go, yeah, 30 seconds. You've all got 30 seconds micro recovery during the day. And, and this concept does come from sport. You see in between a game of tennis, a player will bounce the ball. My cricketers out in the middle of the pitch do what they call gardening. They get the cricket bat and they they pat the pitch. It does nothing on the pitch, Ange. There's three-ton rollers that do this. In rugby league, there's a scrum. All those examples is a drop in intensity where your body and brain gets time to reload, recharge, and go again. So we've got to do the same in the corporate world. The first one is a warm towel on the eyes. I often do this between virtual meetings, and I sometimes do this when I'm task switching all over the place. And task switching drains the brain. We know if you do all sales meetings back to back and then all coaching meetings back to back, or you're focused on operations for a few hours, your brain gets into that mode. But when you go from one thing to the next to the next, it drains your energy. So the the science behind this, optometrists will recommend this for scratchy eyes. I, I got this number of years ago. I had a partner and she was doing this and I went, what are you doing? And she said, the optometrist said to do it. So when we stare at screens all day, that warm compressed, it helps open up what's called the obimium glands and that improves oil gland function. It increases oil flow into the eyes and it slows down that tear evaporation. You combine that with some breathing, 30 seconds of breathing. It's wonderful. Now, anyone can get a towel roll it up, warm water, and you just put it on your eyes. I can just imagine that now. It's almost like a mini warm bath for your eyes. It sounds so relaxing. What's the others? Humming. Hmm. Number two is humming. That's interesting. Are you humming anything? Does it have to be a particular pitch or a tune? You might go Mary Poppins. Seriously, just anything for 30 seconds. And you're looking at me going, what? what? Humming also activates the vagus nerve. And that's that long nerve. We spoke about that wanders from the brain all the way down your neck, through your chest and abdomen, and connects the brain stem to the body. 
when you activate the vagus nerve, it tells you everything is okay. It helps you that downregulate. It calms you as well. And it also brings on that parasympathetic nervous system activation. So your larynx or your voice box is close to your vagus nerve. So when you hum or sing, you naturally activate it. Now, I'm a terrible singer, so I won't do that on this podcast. But just try with me, Ange. Just hum. Go. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like the vibrations are giving your vagus nerve a massage. Yeah, and there's some new, relatively new science around this from Norway. They're doing what they call vibroacoustic therapy. We'll cover that another day. But there's a lot of research around sound therapy as well, that when you get vibrations through your body, it connects us to that spiritual part of our body, to that rhythmic dance. Cut all that out if you don't want to get into the science. Just hum for 30 seconds. Andrew, tell us about the third tip. This one's called Panoramic Vision Reframe. And I borrowed this or adapted this from Dr. Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist. So, Andrew, our eyes are actually a part of our brains. They're the only part that's located outside the skull and it's closely linked to our internal stress levels. So having the eyes outside of our brain does two different things. One, it informs the rest of the brain, whether it's day or night, and that helps with that whole circadian rhythm. That, that, that body clock. And two, it allows us to process events at a distance and adjust our alertness and behavior accordingly. Now, when you think about what do most people do with their eyes when they're at work on a mobile phone or on a computer screen? They just keep staring and staring until they get really fatigued. And Huberman explains that when we're under high levels of stress, especially if we're sitting at our screen, our pupils dilate, our field of vision narrows. And while we see things in a sharper relief, everything else becomes blurry. It's a bit like portrait mode on our smartphone. And this is called focal vision. And when you have focal vision, that also kicks in the sympathetic nervous system. So shifting to that panoramic vision, which is also sometimes called optic flow, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And Huberman recommends doing this for about two to 10 minutes a day. So Ange, for anyone who's listening to this, and you as well to try, when you've been on your smartphone or your computer for a long period, or even if you're reading a Word document, what I want you to do is just to stop change focus, go panoramic, really aim for about a five to seven meter view if you can. So don't just stare at a wall. And Ange, what the research shows on this, panoramic vision allows us to see a bigger picture. It boosts reaction time and it improves decision-making capacity. I've added this when I'm writing and I really do try and put it in every 30 minutes or so just to reset and then come back to the work you're doing. Those sounds really easy to implement, Andrew. What if we had a bit more time, the three-minute strategies? Before I get to the three, I've got a bonus for you. This is called the physiological sigh. Do you ever sigh? <sighs> I, I do. I often sigh when I'm around Sean and he'll ask me what's wrong. And I'm just, I don't know, I just do it as a natural reflex. Now you can give him the science behind it. The average person sighs about once every five minutes. That's 12 sighs per hour or 192 sighs per day. Now, you have around half a billion tiny sacs in your lungs called alveoli. So I'm getting back into my exercise physiology degree. And the alveoli, they pull out oxygen and they push out carbon dioxide into the bloodstream. But as you go about your day, some of these alveoli, they'll collapse spontaneously. So they just, they're like little air bubbles. You know when you have that packaging that you pop? Oh, I love that. Popping those bubbles. I'm obsessed about it. My kids are into it as well. 
It's like one of those little bubbles has just closed in on itself. And when they do, the gas exchange in your lungs becomes inefficient. So your energy levels drop. So the oxygen then decreases in your blood and the carbon dioxide increases. So that just means you get tired. So a natural sigh will help pop those alveoli back into place. So think of inhaling like the accelerator and you think of exhaling as coming off the accelerator. So that physiological shift. In fact, get out of science. Dogs do this. Do they? They do it before they go to sleep. Yeah. I need to observe a dog more closely. They'll, they'll tend to do it through their nose. And humans will also do this when they're in elevators. And here's what it looks like. It's just two inhales, ideally through the nose, and then a longer exhale. So it's inhale. I feel better already. It is. It's a really quick physiological shift, the physiological size. So this can also work when you've got a stitch when you're going for a run because it's often a cramp in the diaphragm. So it's that and then breathe out. But for runners, they say to breathe out and actually make some noise. So it's bringing humming into it. And you sound crazy, but it's a proven way, and I've tried it, to get rid of the stitch. But back to what we're talking about, the physiological sigh. Two breaths in. There's four tips you can do in 30 seconds. Just a bonus one. What about the three-minute tips? Let's go with my favourite, box breathing. Do you do box breathing? I do if I'm feeling particularly nervous before a live event, for example. So box breathing is the strategy we use. You breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, and then hold for four seconds. When I ask corporate groups this, Ange, who does box breathing? About half the audience will put their hand up. Where did you get box breathing from? And they'll go, oh, Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, or I, I did this course and, and I know the paratroopers do it. Yes, they do it in the armed services, but guess where they got it from? Way, 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 way back in time. Yogis have been doing this in India for thousands of years, doing this box breathing. This is also called resonant breathing. Uh, and sometimes in the research, it's also called coherent breathing. So it's slowing that heart rate. It's diaphragmatic breathing. And it's anywhere between three and seven breaths per minute. But with box breathing, when I teach it, I like to go about four breaths per minute. Because if you do the maths, you breathe in through your nostrils for four seconds, you hold for four seconds, you then breathe out through your mouth and you've got to have pursed lips looking like a cat's bum. Great definition, Ange. <laughs> and then hold for four seconds. So this deep breathing increases attention levels. It positively impacts your emotions and psychological well-being. And I, and I just know this from experience, your mental clarity, your energy and your focus shift. So let's give it a go. I'll talk you through it. So everyone, while you're Listening, let's do a box breathing activity. So breathe in through the nostrils. Then hold for four seconds. Two, three, four. Out through the mouth. Then hold. Two, three, four. Just do one more in. Hold. Out through the mouth. And then hold. Now we did two. For a three-minute activity, do that 10 to 12 times. i just looking at my watch and my heart rate's already dropped. What's it down to? It's down to 81. Yeah. But you'll find a lot of people in that three minutes will get that physiological shift to go from stress, sympathetic, to parasympathetic recovery. That's great, Angela. You're picking that up on the heart rate monitor.
And what's the second three-minute activity that people can do? To build on this, I call this deep breathing and imagery. Now, first of all, what is imagery? Imagery is multi-faculty. Because when I say imagery, a lot of people will go, I can't visualize. Well, we know one in five, roughly 19% of people have what's called aphantasia. So that's an inability to close your eyes and think of images. Really? Yeah. Now, a lot of people who say, I can't do that, it's just that they haven't trained it. So if you do have aphantasia, that's okay. It's only one of your senses. We also have touch. You know, you have temperature, you have taste, you have feel. So it's a multi-sensory approach. A recent article in Ergonomics highlighted how the combination of deep breathing and mental imagery, it promoted recovery, specifically cardiovascular recovery in firefighters. So you can think of firefighters, and this was done in New York, who are going to multiple call-outs. They're not always fires, but it jacks your nervous system. So they've built into their training now this combination of breath work and imagery, and they're doing physiological samples wearing heart rate monitors, and they actually saw a huge shift in their physiology, which is a huge shift in down-regulating by doing this activity. Now, like I've said a number of times in this podcast, you've got to do the reps and sets outside in a non-pressurized environment. So then when the alarms are going, you can put it into practice. Enhancing recovery helps with memory. Enhancing recovery helps with the ability to make decisions and respond. And enhancing recovery also makes your brain work better. So there's not many firefighters listening to this, but whatever your career is, a three-minute activity where you combine some breath work and imagery, and and just on the imagery as well, close your eyes for me, Ange. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this podcast, we'll put an example that we've used on one of our banking programs where we give people this activity. So you can fast forward to the end of the podcast and you'll get a, a specific example. But just for now, close your eyes and I want you to feel the temperature on your skin. I want you to notice the sounds around you. Smell the different aromas in the room. And I'm not just talking about the wizard. <laughs> and I saw you doing that and you looking relaxed and calm. I feel relaxed and calm. And I noticed sounds and smells that I didn't notice before that. So while we're doing this live, and it's a forced environment, right? We're in the studio. We also record this. So there's lights on, there's videos. It just shows, though, when you do this more and more, you can go into that place. So I can do the deep breathing and imagery before a big keynote, and it totally shifts me from monkey brain. Uh, uh, what if I stuff up? What if I don't remember my lines? And it's like, oh, it's a happy place for me. It's a safe place, and it's a place where my physiology and my brain works for me, not against me. And you've got one more three-minute tip for us. Yeah, grounding, you know this one. Grounding or earthing, it means getting in direct contact with the ground because we all wear shoes. Like you've got beautiful high heels on today, Ange. But it's getting your feet off, it's your socks off and getting your feet in contact with either sand or grass or just some natural environment. And there's loads of research around this as well. And Dr. Tom and I pulled this into our programs. Some of the benefits, it improves sleep, it normalizes cortisol levels, it reduces pain and inflammation. I know it's crazy just walking around bare feet. Reduces stress, there's greater recovery, your heart rate variability changes. It's also been shown in hospital settings to improve wound healing and just greater well-being and vitality. So it's literally taking your shoes off and connecting with a natural environment. Now, on a Monday morning, I train a bunch of execs and a few of my mates at Balmoral every Monday, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. At the end of it, I'll go, all right, guys, get your shoes off. They whinge and complain. 
And they'll walk around and then they'll say, oh, gee, I feel really good and the environment shifts. In fact, one guy in my group, he's now joined us. But when I first started coaching him one-on-one, I got him to ground. He's a CEO of a large company. And he looked at me like people often do, like, I'm paying you all this money and you're telling me to take my bloody shoes off and walk around? And I said, yeah, yeah, just, just do it for a month. He came back into our clinic here a month later and he said to me, do you know where I live? There's birds and they make noise and they're really happy. I'm like, no, tell me more about that. So he was half taking the mickey out of himself, but he actually said, oh, I've been so focused on the external prize on that Olympic creed, you know, Sitius, Altius, Fortius, that he hadn't built in any recupatio. There was no recovery or connection. So while we laugh about it, when you do grounding, you notice stuff like the birds. Yeah, that's about being in the present is what I'm hearing. So box breathing, imagery, music and grounding, those were three-minute activities. What if you had even extra time so the 30-minute activities that we can do? Well, when you do the 30-second and the three-minute activities, you're changing the relationship with your autonomic nervous system. You are then more productive. You don't walk around with that badge of fatigue, that, that busyness badge we talk about, you know, how I, oh, I'm so busy. And you start to know, hey, I do have more time. So you actually reverse engineer this. Start with the 30-second ones. Just put those in. I don't care how busy you are. Squeeze a few of those in every single day. Then go to the three-minute ones. Do the reps and sets. When you're more skilled at that, then we can go to the 30-minute ones. The first one, Ange, this is so simple. It's called a power nap. What's a power nap? I do it here sometimes. Have you ever come into our office and you see two towels on the floor? I've always wondered what that was. That's me. Uh, when you guys aren't here, I'll often lie down and have a 20-minute power nap. These are your pillows, are they? They're my pillows. <laughs> yeah, they're, seriously, I just use that on the floor, and I've done this for years. If I wake up early and I'm exercising or doing whatever I'm doing and it's a big day and I've got to be on again in the afternoon, around t- 2 o'clock for me is a great time, I'll take a 20-minute power nap. In fact, a pilot named Andre Borschberg flew solo for four days, 21 hours and 52 minutes from Nagoya in Japan to Hawaii in the world's first solar-powered plane. So four and a half days, nearly five days. And he only slept for 20 minutes at a time. He used power naps. It's crazy. Crazy, but it just shows how powerful that 20-minute recharge is. Now, why 20 minutes? You have five sleep cycles. And you go from stage one, light, into stage two, right down to that deep REM sleep. It takes around 20 minutes to get into stage two. If you go into stage three, the deeper wave sleep, if you've had that Sunday afternoon lying on the lounge watching your favorite TV show in the sun and you wake up 45 minutes and you feel really fatigued, it's almost like you've got jet lag, groggy, yeah, you've gone too long. So you just want to go that light phase one and phase two, power nap, awesome. That's the first one. What's the second one? Second one is moving meditation. And this is for all those people who are listening to this going, I've tried meditation. I went to the ashram. I did the course and they told me to sit still. But even Buddha in some of his teachings recommended meditating in other postures. I'm not good at sitting down. Does that surprise you in being still? (laughs) (laughs) But I've learned moving meditation really works for me much more than just sitting down. 
Now, there's two types when you look at the literature. One is extreme sports. This is not what I'm talking about now, but that is when you are shifted into an intentional state of mindfulness. If you're rock climbing, if you're jumping out of a plane, like a mate of mine, Robbo, does, every time I see social media, I'm like, you're crazy, Robbo. Or if you are snow skiing, you're going fast, and it's a great way to be present because you have to, because it's dangerous otherwise. But the one I'm talking about today is my adaptation of slow-moving meditation. And this is a shift in your consciousness while doing some simple movements. So you can do this and walk like a dog, even if you don't have a dog. So when I take Toby for a moving meditation walk, I'll do everything Toby does apart from pee on the fence. If you take a dog for a walk, they stop, they look around, they look at the environment, you're present. No mobile phone in moving meditation, no podcast in moving meditation. Why? It puts you into sympathetic nervous system. Stretch like a cat, swim like a dolphin, tap into that inner animal. So what I mean swim like a dolphin, go to a beach, a creek, a pool, don't wear your Garmin, Don't look at stroke rate. Don't look at heart rate. Just get in the water and play. So it's the art of moving and detaching psychologically, but you've got to make sure your heart rate still stays low. Otherwise, you're shifting into that sympathetic state. What this does as well, it drops your brainwave patterns when you're doing an activity that's slow enough with that slow heart rate. You say no podcast, but can you listen to some calming music during these slow meditations? Oh, yeah, I'll let you do that. Yeah. As long as you have the discipline to not grab your mobile phone. And then check Insta whilst yeah, you're doing So you know what? For most people, don't. Just go and do it. Connect with the nature. Do you know there's birds when I do moving meditation? <laughs> What's your third 30-minute strategy? You're going to love this, Ange. It's called massage. Oh, I love massages. One of my favorite things. Most people say that. And then they say, but I'm too busy to do it. That, you know, do the stack. Do the 30 seconds. Do the three minutes. Become more efficient. Get in touch with your physiology, work with it, not against it, and you'll have time for a massage. My first learnings on this was as an athlete and working with athletes because you get regular massage as part of recovery. And the research shows massage, it improves flexibility, blood flow, it reduces heart rate, and it increases that parasympathetic activation. But all that aside, I just love going and getting a massage. And the, the lady I go to, I've been going to for a while, It builds in a lot of what we've spoken about. You go in there, you leave your mobile phone and reception. When you hop into the room, it's it's relatively dark. She puts on music, your choice. No ACDC there. It's nice, relaxing music. She uses aromatherapy. She rolls a a towel. I'm just recognizing this as I'm talking about it. A warm towel on your eyes. So it's a whole sensory overload when you're in there. It's beautiful. Those all sound like beautiful, wonderful things that I would love to do and incorporate into my activities and practices. I detect that there's a red thread in all of these things, Andrew, that you spoke about, which is about engaging all of our senses in order to be present and downregulate. You spoke about imagery and and panoramic vision, so that's the sight. You spoke about the hearing in terms of calming music. You spoke about touch, so the massages. Taste, I feel like, is something else that can be incorporated in this. Yeah, taste is something that I'll build in when we run our Mental Skills Academy, which I'm loving that we're doing now with Navy, Banks and a few other companies, we, we go through the science. It's actually pretty similar to this format today. We talk about why is everyone so crazy busy? The world's gone into overload. So people go, oh, 
I feel like everyone else. Yes, but that's not how you're going to feel because then we tell them the science, body and brain, and then we shift into the practical activities. So when I'm doing this in the classroom, Ange, I'll give people a little mint or a strawberry and then build that in as well. So you, you do build in that taste and that olfactory response. Now, most people talk about the five senses, but we talk about sixth sense. There's a great guy that I, I'm going to get on the podcast soon as well. His name is Matt Formston. Matt uh, was born with vision. At the age of five, he lost his sight. Uh, Matt is a multiple world championship cyclist, gold medal cyclist. And he thought, just to shake things up a little bit, last year he surfed Nazaire, that ridiculous, was it 50-foot wave, toe in, and he's blind. And Matt talks about the sixth sense that we miss, which is that intuition in a room. So Matt said he can be in a boardroom and he's sitting there and people think, okay, he can't see. He was in a boardroom recently and there's a lady in the corner who wasn't paying attention. And he said, Carol, is there something you're missing on this? And she obviously was startled and said, well, what what do you mean? He said, "I, I can feel that you're not paying attention. So he said not having eyesight gives him this gift, this sixth sense. I can't wait to interview Matt. Superpower. Yeah. And Matt believes we all have the ability to tap into that sixth sense when you downregulate, in my language, and get in touch with your senses more as well. So I'm looking forward to having Matt on soon. We've reached the end of the podcast now, Andrew, and I don't think I need to do a big wrap. We've gone through the challenges. We've gone through the science behind it and some practical activities. But is there any last thing that you want to add to it to this? Because I know you always love throwing in bonuses. I'm laughing. You're doing a me on me. I always do this to people. That's a really good question, Ange. <laughs> no, the last message I've got, reps and sets. You've got to do this. Do the reps and sets. If you've listened to any of this podcast and gone, huh, I get that, or huh, I need to do that, just do it. Stop procrastinating. Stop making it so hard. Down regulation, the way that we're teaching it, it really is easy to do it in 30 seconds, but you've got to break those habits and behaviors. So just start somewhere. Start with the 30 second activities. The more you do, the easier it becomes. Absolutely. Now I'm back in the studio with Thomas. I've actually had to take a break after that session. It was quite, there was a lot that we covered and I actually felt like I needed to downregulate. I have to take a lunch break and take a bit of a breather so that we can reflect on what we covered in our podcast today. I'm not used to podcasting and I found I had to really engage all of my energy to think and construct and make sure that we're putting together a coherent message for our listeners and I was wiped out after that. (laughs) So before I talk about my thoughts, Thomas, I'm really keen to hear what you thought of the podcast. Yeah, I thought this was a good one. Obviously, my version of downregulating is definitely a lot different to Andrew's, but I have found myself trying to change it up a little bit, not use as much screens. You know, that's uh, trying to read a bit more or just sit and do nothing for a while if I can without being on my phone. And I think the, the biggest thing I took away from that was when Andrew was talking about the farmers and how they have a seasonal cycle. It was like a switch flicked in my head because my grandpa and both my uncles, well, my grandpa was a farmer and both my uncles are still farming and they've been doing that for longer than I've been alive and I'll talk to mum and I'll be like, what are they up to on the farm? And she'll be saying, oh, they're harvesting, they're grading, they're doing this and then at the end of at the end of the harvesting season, they'll take a big holiday for you know, a few weeks, 
next uh, couple of months, depending on what's going on. And I was sitting there early and I was like, oh, my God. That's why they do That's that. That's amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> my entire life I knew it was happening. And then I, Andrew said that about the farmers earlier. I was like, all oh, right, that makes a lot of sense. And I've heard you talk about your family um, before in the farming business. I didn't realise it was something that they are still currently doing. But mm. but we always have something to learn from the people that are around us. And sometimes the lessons aren't so obvious. Andrew is one of those people which we're always watching and observing. And sometimes it looks like he has ADHD and he's running from one thing to the next. And But I, we, I do really see it. I don't know, because you're always with him as well in the keynotes and recording live sessions and he would move from one thing to the other but he does have this ability to downregulate. it's not something that he just preaches but i actually see it in practice like i said in the podcast he will go and he will take moments to himself to, to calm himself down what have you seen him do when he runs runs around yeah, he's got a bad case of what I heard described the other day as CEO brain. And uh, I've seen him do a number of things, even like mid-keynote, he'll put a video on or he'll play some music and get people to downregulate themselves and he'll just sort of step off stage for a second, take a quick breather and then he'll get back up and he's ready to go again. But yeah, like you're saying in the office, I see him lying on the floor. He doesn't he doesn't sleep in the office when I'm in, but he'll, he'll go into a meeting room and you see people walk in and look at him and look really <laughs> awkward and then leave. But he'll, yeah, he'll take a power nap or, yeah, before a keynote, like you said, he'll, he'll, you know, he'll disappear sometimes and everyone will panic and I'm, you know, I, I have to then calm them down and say, no, no, it's fine, he'll be here. He is here. He's in the, he's in the vicinity. He's in the building. Yeah. Elvis has not left the building. It's just part of his process. That's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I actually, now that we've had a discussion, an in-depth discussion about it, I'm actually a lot more aware of what he does and, and, and reflecting and why he does it. Um, and I think that example that you had with the keynotes, how he builds in time for downregulation into his presentations mm. by putting in music or videos, it's not just for the entertainment, for the audience, which it is a factor, but it's also a way that he then recuperates or you know mentally prepares himself for the, for the next thing and it still brings that same energy and that same um, entertainment value as well so in today's talk we the, we had three components we've learned that the world's speeding up and that's never going to change but it's a really opportunistic time for people to understand the strategies when it comes to down regulation and actually to use them to really give yourself that performance edge and the second part what I really liked about was how Andrew talked about the link between the body and the brain and how it impacts the vagal nerve and how you can train that to increase your capacity and the importance of doing so to help you with your creative thinking, with your innovation, to really broaden that performance at work and it's not just about relaxing, it's actually helping you from a physiology and a mental perspective to give you that edge and then the third component that three by three some really simple mm. strategies to take away and build this into um, your working life it doesn't have to be like you don't have to I think one of the thing that struck me was it doesn't have to be going out into a 
yoga retreat or some lifestyle retreat where you have to spend thousands of dollars and <laughs> have organic food yeah, and not, not talk for 30 days straight or exactly something it doesn't yeah. have to be so in, intense there's just micro moments that you can put into your day into your routine but just being I think the key thing for me is being purposeful about it that's it and I think I'm going to have a crack at some of this because you know, I recently moved house and that was stressful and there was no time to downregulate there because any free time was like, oh, let's go get some more stuff and move more. Or more clean things. this. Yeah, and clean this and do organize that. Organize that. And that's all finally over. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try some of this. I'm going to get out there in, at lunchtime or something in the backyard and my shoes off and have a crack. Have a bit of grounding. Mm. Thanks, Thomas, for joining me in this reflection time. I think my what I'm going to be doing more of, I feel like I've been given permission to do more massages, to take more breaks, <laughs> have a bit of nap time during work, and, you know, humming. Yeah. Just hum to myself a bit more. You might hear me humming in the office. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you, I won't be able to hear you because I'll be taking a power nap. So. <laughs>